through the gospel according to John. We're going to give our attention to John uh, chapter 2. We're going to go verses 1 through 11. This is God's word. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of the signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is God's word. Let's go to him in prayer. O Lord our God, we simply ask for you to speak to us through your word, for we, your servants, listen. We ask that you would manifest your glory in our presence that we might see and believe. Hear our prayer. We pray in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen. I was looking over my records this week, and I discovered that I have officiated 24 wedding ceremonies. That's 24 grooms, 24 brides, 24 wedding planners, 24 caterers, and 24 wedding receptions, 48 sets of in-laws, and three next-day visits from brides and grooms who came to see me because I forgot to sign the marriage license. It happens. And in all of those ceremonies, I've noticed three constants, three things that all wedding ceremonies have in common. The first one is beauty. Weddings are always beautiful, and brides are always the most beautiful person in the room. I've never seen a bride who did not look amazing on her wedding day. Now, I've seen some grooms who need a little bit of work, uh, but the bride always stunning, always impeccable. It is truly a sight to behold. Number two, joy. Yes, you will find some disgruntled ex-boyfriends and ex-girlfriends at wedding ceremonies. It happens. You will find the occasional in-law who's freaking out about something. But overall, weddings are a time for great joy and laughter, and celebration. In fact, I would say that if the number one dominant emotion that is felt at a wedding is love, then trailing close behind it, number two is joy. 
Where else but a wedding can you find grandmas and grandpas out on the dance floor? Where else can you find a pastor out on the dance floor? Nowhere but a wedding. Kate and I smiled so much at our wedding that literally our cheeks were hurting the next day. In fact, I think if you don't start smiling and dancing when Celebration by Cool and the Gang comes on at a wedding, you're basically the Tin Man from The Wizard of Oz, okay? You, you just don't have a heart. Number three, surprises. Weddings are filled with surprises. I once had a horse eat the flowers at a wedding where I was presiding. I once had a uh, the flower girl break loose from her mother, who was one of the bridesmaids, and run like the Keystone Cops behind me through the choir loft, up and down. And that mother could not catch that little child. That little girl had wheels. Plus, I think the mom was wearing new high heels, you know, for the wedding, so it was no context. I've seen uh, groomsmen lose the ring a time or two. I once had a bride who did not come out when they started playing her music. They had a four-piece string quartet, beautiful music. They were playing uh, Pachelbel's Canon in D. Uh, everyone is standing up front. I'm up front. The groomsmen are over here. The bridesmaids are here. The music hits and nothing. She simply does not come out. Do you know how long Pachelbel's Canon in D is? I do. It is five minutes and two seconds long. Do you know how long it feels when you're standing there staring at a door that will not open? About 27 minutes long. I honestly thought I was going to have to call off the wedding. They played the whole song. It started again. Eventually, 30 seconds into the second time through the song, she came out. Now, I do not have the power of mental telepathy, uh, contrary to what you may have heard. But the whole time she's standing there, I'm trying to beam in her head. You do not have to do this. It is not too late. Uh, this decision will change your whole life, so if you don't want to go, uh, speak now or forever hold your peace. Well, thankfully, it all worked out in the end, and uh, they all lived happily ever after. Beauty, joy, and surprises. We see all three in a simple, small country wedding in the town of Cana in Galilee. A seemingly ordinary wedding reception that became the single most important wedding reception in the history of the world because at this wedding reception, Jesus manifested his glory. How does this miracle, turning water into wine, manifest the glory of Jesus? Why would this miracle be the first miracle that Jesus ever performed? Why not raising the dead? Why not healing the sick? Why not walking on water or, or feeding the 5,000? All of those miracles, on the surface at least, seem much more glorious than this. This week I was reading a quote from Dr. Reynolds Price. Dr. Reynolds Price was a uh, literature professor at Duke University he observed this, if you are inventing a biography of Jesus Christ, 
That is, if you're just making up stories about Jesus to get across his power and his glory, who would invent, as his inaugural sign of Jesus' career, a miraculous solution to a mere social embarrassment? Now, the first answer, of course, is you, you wouldn't make it up. It happened this way because it happened this way. John didn't simply uh, decide to tell this story first. Jesus decided to tell this story first. Jesus was showing us something, which leads to the second point, that this is a sign. John uses that word specifically in verse 11. A sign is something that points beyond itself to something even greater than itself. That this ring, which I wear on my left hand, I've been wearing for almost 20 years, is a sign. It points beyond itself to something deeper, something more profound. This ring on my finger is a symbol of Kate's love for me. And the ring that she wears on her finger is a symbol of my love for her. It's a sign. By calling this miracle a miraculous sign, John is telling us that there's something here that reveals the hidden glory of Jesus. There's something about Jesus that we couldn't know or wouldn't know apart from this miraculous sign. So what is it? What's going on here? What are we missing? Why would Jesus turn water into wine at a wedding reception? How does this reveal his glory? Well, these are some of the questions we're going to try to answer this morning. And we're going to do that by breaking this story down into three parts. If you're a note taker, you want to take notes, here are the three parts of our sermon this morning. First, we'll talk about the situation. Second, we'll talk about the solution. And then finally, we'll talk about the sign. So in the first half of the, the, the sermon, the situation and the solution, we'll talk about what happened. And in the second half of the sermon, when we get to the sign, we'll talk about why it happened and what it means. So the situation, the solution, and the sign. Are you ready? All right, let's take a closer look. We begin with the situation. Verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. All right, let's set the stage. At this point in the story, Jesus is now 30 years old. In the last chapter, Jesus called his first five disciples, his soon-to-be best friend, John, two brothers named Andrew and Peter, and two close friends named Philip and Nathaniel. All five of them have joined Jesus and his mother Mary and perhaps some other members of Jesus' extended family. There's some hints in the text that maybe this was part of Jesus' extended family. They've all gathered together to attend this wedding at Cana in Galilee. Now, two things to know. Number one, Cana in Galilee was a relatively small town, perhaps bigger than Nazareth, perhaps the same size. It was about eight miles north of Nazareth, the town where Jesus and his family uh, lived. Now, to put that in perspective, if you're from around here, um, 
The city of Molino, or the town of Molino, is 10 miles north of Cantonment, where we are today. Or, if you just so happen to be visiting us from Orlando today, it is roughly the distance between the Magic Kingdom and Disney Hollywood Studios. About eight miles. Number two, weddings in the ancient world were a really big deal. Obviously, they are still a big deal in our culture, but back then, the wedding reception could last up to a week. It was a huge, huge celebration. Think about that the next time you want to leave a little bit early before they cut the cake. They cut the cake on day five. <laughs> when two people got married in the ancient world, the groom and his family were responsible for providing enough food, enough water, and enough wine to last for the week. That's a lot of wine. Hundreds and hundreds of gallons of wine. I was curious this week, so I did the math, and I discovered that 200 gallons of wine, which is a very conservative estimate for a week-long wedding reception, would be about uh, 2,100 bottles of wine. Now, assuming they bought their wine at Trader Joe's, uh, or uh, Trader Yousef's, as it was named back then, that's about $8,500 worth of wine. The groom and his family bought a used Toyota Camry worth of wine, which, ironically, they could not drive after this party because that's a lot of wine. So here we are at the wedding, the guests are eating, the guests are drinking, everyone's having a great time, and then they run out of wine. This is an emergency. This is a, a disaster. Without wine, this party is over. The groom and his family who were responsible for taking care of their guests would be shamed in the community. And in an honor and shame culture, that is a very, very big deal. People would have been talking and whispering about this for years and years to come. It would have been a scandal for the groom and his family. That's why Mary, who obviously knew that her son Jesus was the divine son of God, presents the problem to Jesus, strongly implying you need to do something. You need to help. So what would Jesus do? How would Jesus help? Would Jesus restore the groom's honor? Would Jesus keep this party going? Would Jesus turn water into wine? Part two, the solution. Verse 6, now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus responded to the crisis by telling the servants to fill six stone jars, each holding between 20 and 30 gallons with water. 
our best guess is about, it's about 150 gallons of water that would become wine. Then something happened. We don't know exactly how he did it, but somehow, some way, without saying a word, the water in those jars turned into wine. Jesus said, draw some out, give it to the master of the feast. The servants obeyed him, and the master of the feast was so impressed by the quality of the wine that he said, most people serve the good wine first, and then the four-buck chuck after a glass or three. But you have saved the best for last. Jesus is always saving the best for last. Jesus, the creator of the universe, used his divine power to turn the water of purification into the wine of celebration. And in so doing, he also turned the groom's guilt and shame into honor and glory. Jesus not only answered Mary's request, he not only kept the party going, he imputed his good works to this undeserving groom who was counted as righteous, who was honored above all other grooms, not because of what he did, but because of what Jesus did for him. Incredible. That is the gospel. This is the grace of God. The situation, no wine. The solution, new wine. That leads us to part three, the sign. Verse 11 this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. The question is, if this is a sign, what exactly is the sign signifying? What does this miracle teach us about who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do? What does it teach us about our guilt? What does it teach us about God's grace? What does it teach us about how to live lives of gratitude in thanksgiving for Jesus? Well, the first thing that this miracle signifies is that Jesus is God. Now, maybe this is obvious to you, perhaps not, but only God can turn water into wine. If you came up to me with a bottle of water and said, I would like you to turn this bottle of water into a nine-year-old bottle of Merlot or a two-week-old can of Miller Lite, I could not do it. I would be powerless to help you because I am not God. I'm a human being. Jesus was powerful to help because Jesus is God. Only the Creator has this kind of power over His creation. And by doing this, Jesus is demonstrating a truth that He will later teach in John chapter 10, where He told the people, I and the Father are one. Remember the theme of John's gospel from John 20, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs, same word, in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this, book, in this book, but these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life through his name. 
Now just think of the implications of this. Three things from this story seem to just jump right off the page. First, because Jesus is God, we should ask him to help us. In our life group, we've been going through the book Trusting God by Jerry Bridges. And one of the issues that we addressed at last week's meeting was the question of, if God is sovereign, why pray? If God knows everything and God is all-powerful over all things, isn't it strange to ask God to change things? It's sort of like holding a book in your hand and praying that God would change the ending of the stories. Isn't it already written down? These are good questions. Why pray if God is sovereign? But notice, that's not the question that Mary asks. Mary prays precisely because Jesus is sovereign. She prays precisely because she knows that Jesus has the power to help. We cannot change God's mind, but God invites us to come to him in prayer. Because of that, she knew that Jesus could do anything as simple as turning water into wine. And so she asked. She said, Jesus, they're out of wine. So I was thinking, when it comes to prayer, no request is too big and no request is too small. Ask him. When you pray, Lord, please help my friend. Lord, would you please allow my business to succeed? Lord, would you give me patience? And I want it right now. (laughs) Remember that you are praying to God the Father in the name of God the Son, who turned 150 gallons of water into 150 gallons of wine. Without saying a word, he thought it. And it happened. Amazing. Do you think that he can answer your prayers? He can. And he will. Often in ways that are just as exciting and just as unexpected as what happened at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. Jesus is God. Ask him to help you. Now, the second implications of of this is because Jesus is God, we should not only ask, we should obey What did Mary tell the servants? Verse 5, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. How many problems would we avoid in life if we simply took that advice? Read the Bible, read the Word of God, and then do exactly what it tells you to do. Now, yes, there's nuance. Yes, you have to learn how to interpret the Bible correctly. Yes, context matters. Yes, not every commandment from the Old Testament is still applicable in the New, which is why I can eat bacon and shellfish with a clear conscience and joy in my heart. And yet, Jesus tells us that we should obey him. He is the Lord, and we are his servants. How much better would our lives be on this side of the cross, on this side of our adoption, if we simply did whatever he tells us to do? Answer, a lot better. Jesus is God. And so we obey him. Life works out a lot better when we do. Third implication of this, because Jesus is God, we should not only ask, we should not only obey, we should believe. Verse 11 And his disciples believed in him. 
Now, at this point in the story, chapter 2 of John's gospel, did the disciples know everything about Jesus? No, absolutely not. Remember, they're in year one, really week one, of their three-year discipleship, apprenticeship uh, time with Jesus. Did they understand all of the implications of this miracle? No, probably not. We probably don't understand all the implications of this miracle. It's, it's amazing. It's vast what Jesus is doing here. But they saw Jesus. They saw him manifest his glory. And seeing the glory of Jesus, they believed. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe that Jesus can and did turn water into wine? Do you believe that Jesus can take all of your shame and all of your guilt and turn it into honor and glory? Do you believe that he can take all of your sorrow and turn it into joy? In John chapter 20, Jesus said to Thomas, doubting Thomas, you remember him? He said, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This miracle signifies that Jesus is God. So ask, obey, and believe. Now, the second big thing that this miracle signifies is that Jesus is the master of the banquet. Now, we meet the master of the banquet in verse 8. Who is he? What was his job? What did he do at the wedding? Well, the master of the banquet had one maiden job at a wedding in the ancient world, and that job was to keep the party going, to keep things moving. Imagine if your DJ and your wedding planner and your caterer were the same person. There's something wrong with the food? Go talk to the master of the banquet. Hey, why isn't anyone dancing? Go talk to the master of the banquet. Where's the mother-in-law? Where'd she go? Well, go find the MOB. He'll find her and he'll make it right because that's his job. Now, in this story, who keeps the party going? Who's the master of the banquet? It's Jesus. Jesus takes this party, which has gone completely off the rails. It's about to end, and he keeps it going by turning the water into wine. By making this his very first miracle, his opening statement, his inaugural act as the Messiah, the Son of God, Jesus is saying, this is what the kingdom of God looks like. Yes, obviously, in the, the kingdom of God, we have sorrow, but we take heart because Jesus has overcome the world. The kingdom of God is like a wedding reception. It's like a feast. The ark of the universe bends towards joy. The ark of the universe bends toward laughter and celebration. Here it is in Isaiah 25. On, the, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people 
He will take away from the earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have never had more fun than at my own wedding reception. (laughs) It was great. The food was the greatest food. And I was thinking, I can't remember if we had wine at our wedding reception. It was a mixed marriage, Baptist and Presbyterian. Uh, So... It's possible we didn't have wine and that my relatives were like, you know, 1950s hoodlums drinking in the parking lot, but there was a band and there was dancing and celebration and everyone we knew from all over the country had all come together in this one place. That's where this is headed. Again, yes, there is self-denial in the Christian life. Yes, there are laws and rules in the Christian life. Yes, we are told to take up our cross and follow Jesus. And yet, yet, we misrepresent Jesus to a world that needs this kind of joy when we present Jesus as a cold, unloving, uh, emotionless Uh, Messiah, sort of a a Stepford Messiah who has no feelings or no emotions or no joy. Yes, we fight against sin, but we do not fight against joy. Jesus, if Jesus came to your wedding reception, he would be dancing. How do we know? This miracle. Jesus is the master of the banquet, the Lord of the feast. The third thing this signifies, last one, is that Jesus is the true groom. Verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, first glance, that is a strange reply, is it not? How many of you have ever called your mother woman? (laughs) I have never done that and would never do that. Uh, She is now uh, knocking on the door of 80, but I think she could still take me if I called her woman, okay? I read many commentators this week, and every single one, except one, one exception, all were trying to convince me that woman is sort of a normal way of addressing your mother in the ancient world. This, in spite of the fact that there is a word for mother in the Greek, and we know that because the Apostle John uses it in verse 3. In fact, I think John is deliberately drawing our attention to the word woman in verse 4 by putting the word mother in verse 3. So what is he saying? What's happening here? Why why would Jesus call his mother woman? I think that Jesus is distracted. It seems like he's thinking about something else. It seems like his thoughts are miles and miles away. And Mary was interrupting him. What could Jesus have been thinking about? Well, he tells us, my hour has not yet come. What does that mean? Well, every single time that phrase, the hour, the hour of Jesus is used in the Gospel of John, every single time, without exception, Jesus is referring to the hour of his death, the hour of his death on the cross. And so, when he talks about this, Jesus is distracted because he's thinking about his death. Now, it seems like an odd thing to be thinking about. Why Why would he be thinking about his death at a wedding? And the answer is because his death is the wedding. 
What do I mean? Well, if you were to read the Old Testament, you will see many allusions to God, and we hear God saying, you know, alluding that God wants to be our Father, that God wants to be our God, that God wants to be our, our good shepherd, that God is the God of angel armies, and he wants to fight for us, but he also wants to be our groom, and he wants us to be his bride. That that essentially is what the book of Ruth is all about. Come back tonight, and you will hear it. In Boaz, Ruth finds a husband redeemer. That's who Jesus is. But there's a problem. The Bible also says that we are sinners, and it likens our sin to the sin of adultery. By sinning against God, we have committed spiritual adultery against him. When we sin, we are essentially cheating against God with other lowercase g gods, gods of our own making. And so the question then is, how can he forgive us? How can he restore us? How can he purify us? Do you think it's an accident that John specifically mentions that these stone water jars were used in the Jewish rite of purification? Here's how he did it. Jesus died so that we might live. Jesus, our husband redeemer, drank the bitter wine literally and figuratively of suffering and death on the cross so that we could drink the better wine of everlasting life in the kingdom of God. What does John call the kingdom of God, the new heavens and the new earth, at the end of his final work, his magnum opus, the book of Revelation, he calls it the wedding supper of the Lamb. Jesus transforms the water of purification into the wine of celebration. And now, because of his love, we are beautiful brides, and he rejoices over us with singing, I am my beloved's, and my beloved's is mine. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Have you experienced his joy? Have you savored his love and compassion? Has he turned your water into wine? He did it once, and he can do it again. Do you believe? This, the first of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and the disciples believed in him. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are overwhelmed by your grace. We thank you, Jesus, that you turn the water into wine. That, Lord, you have purified us, so there's no more need of purification, of washings and rites and, and rituals. You've done away with it. All that remains, Lord Jesus, is the cup of celebration and joy as we feast in the kingdom of God. We know, Lord God, that that will be a consummate reality for all of us when Jesus comes again. And so we simply pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We eagerly await the arrival of our groom, the Lord of the feast. Hear our prayer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.